0: You majored in politics. I'm curious on like, how do you decide this path?
1: The simple answer was growing up Chinese American, it felt like there were only three job options for me, either being a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. And out of the three, I chose being a lawyer, which spoiler alert, I'm not a lawyer right now.
0: If someone is listening to this audio, they're like, okay, Angel is awesome. She has Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Gusto, every big name you can think of on her resume. What's the secret?
1: What I really enjoy doing is meeting with people, understanding what makes them a whole person, understanding the humanity of their lived experiences, and then seeing ways that we could partner together.
0: What do you know now you didn't know when you were say 17 or 18?
1: What I know now is that life is unexpected and beautiful. And rather than trying to fast forward to the ending to know the exact outcome, it might be more important to just enjoy being in the present because oftentimes, you're exactly where you're meant
0: to be. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Careers Not Ladders podcast, where we talk about unique paths of professional successes and growth. Our guest today is Angel Wong. I haven't known Angel since the fall of 2020, and uh, we have worked um, at the tech club at our business school together. We have eaten out together. We have played tennis together. She kicked my ass in tennis, in case you cared. But in between all those get-togethers, we had chatted about her background, her aspirations. Like, if you talk to her, you'll get to learn so many things. And she has done so much in her life already. And we could never catch up, like her whole life history. It's hard to do in those small get-togethers. So that's why she is here. oh welcome, Angel. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for coming. So, Angel is head of growth at Annie's Health. It's a culturally responsive mental health company for people of color, specifically the Asian community. And I don't want to go to her whole career history so far because we will be doing that in the podcast itself. But her professional path, we use the intersection of civic tech and policy. And we will dive into all of that, but let's start from the beginning, from your childhood. So you grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, right next to Lake Michigan. What was your childhood like? Like any core memories from high school that played a key role in your career aspirations?
1: I love that we're going way back because the whole picture of a person is not just their job but their upbringing. I would say my childhood was very multidimensional. I felt lucky enough that I had the chance to navigate between multiple value systems. Um, I got the value system at home with um, being a proud child of immigrants and having more East Asian values around family centricity, valuing education, intergenerational responsibilities. But then I also got to go to an American Midwestern high school in Western Michigan, like you said. Um, and I was lucky enough to stay in the school system between elementary school, middle school, and high school. And I'm so close to my community that I actually organized our 10 year reunion last year. Um, I went back wow. in February, got to see my old piano teacher, a tennis coach, and some members of the Chinese Association of Western Michigan, too. So I'm um, very fond memories of growing up in Michigan.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. And one thing that jumps out to me when I'm looking at your LinkedIn is that you majored in politics and I'm sure the roots were down in like high school or maybe in your upbringing. So I'm curious to know, like, how do you decide this path?
1: There's a simple answer and a more robust answer. The simple answer was growing up Chinese American. It felt like there were only three job options for me, either being a doctor, lawyer or an engineer. And out of the three, I chose being a lawyer, which, spoiler alert, I'm not a lawyer right now. Therefore, it felt like the major that had the best path to legal studies was studying politics. The more robust, answer would be I was and still am fascinated by structures of power and decision-making processes because I see politics as the distribution and re- of resources and priorities within a society and I felt that studying that allowed me to look at the intersection of sociology, anthropology, um, legal structures and it was a great way for me to learn about different cultures too
0: right no i saw that and i also saw that you started politics at New york michigan which is great school by the way i did my grad school there so my first grad school but let me get back to the question so you started New york michigan and then you transferred to columbia how did that happen and why was that needed
1: by the way i do remember one of our early conversations was the fact that you worked in the automobile industry in michigan so i'm glad we bonded over both being people of asian descent that somehow ended up in michigan <laughs> um <laughs> So I really love that I got to start my university at a public school and then transfer to a pi- private school. Um, I started at the University of Michigan because it was closer to my family. A lot of my friends went. Um, but I think the answer that is more vulnerable that I don't often tell people is that when I was applying to colleges, I didn't present the best version of myself, let's say. And I didn't actually get into some of the top universities that I was really aiming for. And it felt quite honestly shameful and embarrassing. I felt like I didn't bring the honor that I wanted to my parents who had worked so hard for me. Um, so then my second year of college, I had gone into the Ross School of Business as an undergrad. I was doing a dual degree between the LSA Honor School at Michigan and Ross. But then I also applied to transfer. And um, even though the statistics were not really in my favor, I think the acceptance rate at Columbia at that time was around 6.5%. And um, that was the general acceptance rate. And then the transfer rate was even lower. But I thought it would still be better to try than not even give myself the opportunity. So luckily they accepted me and I decided to transfer to Columbia to try living in a larger city and experience more ways of living life.
0: Yeah. And you did that. And I'm trying to think of like, is this, uh, so I'm I'm not American. So this isn't new to me. Um, how common are transfers in like American college system? Is that- it's
1: decently common. I would say I have a few friends who either started at community college and then moved to different universities. I would say it's not unheard of. But, yeah, it's hard to say what general percentage. It's not unheard of.
0: And is this something to do with your, like, um, East Asian upbringing, or is this, like, common across races in the US?
1: Oh, I would say, um, there is a high pressure to succeed and perfectionism that's often viewed in societies of Asian descent in general where education is put at a premium. So when I was growing up, there was encouragement to apply to universities that were, you know, ranked on certain types of schools and newsletters Um, So I would say that was probably my impetus to try to aim at certain universities in the first place. But I haven't heard of a lot of people transferring.
0: Um, So let's go to Columbia. You were obviously involved in a lot of things at Columbia. No big surprises there. Uh, You were involved in Design for America for a really long time. So let's talk about that. Uh, What were you doing there at DFA and any key learnings?
1: I was working on human centered design for social enterprises. So thinking about how we can tackle problems um, and be passionate about solving problems rather than being too overly invested in solutions. So I think it was a way to think about how to embed empathy into designing um, solutions and systematic thinking. And it was also a chance for me to start practicing leadership skills, especially among peers who were the same age and had no formal titles or authority. Um, it was a great way to think about how to build expectations into an organization and how to empower people to be their best self. So I was lucky enough to be co-president of the Columbia chapter of Design for America for a
0: year and a half right and obviously you did more than DFA you were also part of the graduate consulting club and you started a curriculum called empowering youth in politics Uh, so I'm trying to understand like what was your thought process what were you thinking of doing like right after Columbia I know your long term goals but like what was your right after graduation goal.
1: If I put myself in the shoes of being 20 and 21 again, my thought process was to look at opportunities where I could learn the most, make friends, and have a good time. I wasn't sure what type of career I wanted to do. There was a more carved and stable path to go into consulting and finance. Being an undergrad student in New York City, But when I was choosing extracurriculars, I was basically looking at experimenting and exposing myself to as many different learning opportunities as possible and not trying to over-engineer the perfect path. Um, Because I think at that time, rather than aiming for one specific narrow outcome, I just wanted to sample a broad array of options to then know where I wanted to start. Um, That said... I was much more risk averse at that time. I definitely wanted to gravitate towards what I thought were safer options, larger brand uh, companies that could give me more optionality in the future. And so my original thought after graduating undergrad was to go into a management consulting firm. I will say, though, most people don't know that I actually graduated a semester early from undergrad to work at a refugee camp off the coast of Turkey. And that was to test the hypothesis about whether or not I wanted to work in nonprofits over companies,
0: right? Uh, so I did see that, and I know you you did work at um, ATK, which is a consulting company, which is great. And I'll come back to that, but I'm going off a tangent here, <laughs> and I'm trying. Uh, so what I want to know is that when you were so confused uh, with like what exactly to do right after your Columbia, and and everyone is like 17, 21, nobody really knows. Did you have a mentor, like an older sibling or someone who you can guide? who can give you some guide?
1: Great question. I didn't have an older sibling. I didn't really have a mentor at that time. One learning now is I've built a personal board of advisors from former managers, um, people I respect in the field, people a few years older than me, that I can call up to ask about anything from negotiating uh, offer letters to interviewing tips. But at that time, um, you know, my parents had immigrated from another country. They hadn't done college in the United States. So it was very much me um, going to school counselors, talking to other students, and then just putting myself in as many opportunities as possible so i arranged a lot of coffee chats Um, i went to many social networking events so unfortunately i didn't really have a lot of personal mentors to lean on good
0: um so let's go to the concerning question which i was meaning to ask before um atk any? what was the most impactful project you did at atk
1: I had the opportunity to lead supplier negotiations in Hong Kong and Shenzhen. But what was interesting was I was originally staffed as a business analyst to do the brunt calculations of our supplier sourcing project. I was actually the only woman on the team and the only person of color going back and forth to Kansas City every single week. So over the six-month engagement I was with them, I started being the person who was ordering lunches, taking <laughs> notes, consolidating requests for proposals, organizing the supplier sourcing event, calculating bids, and um, calculating cost savings. But... What ended up happening was that most of the suppliers that we were sourcing for this competitive process were from China. And unintentionally, they had not realized that I was able to speak Chinese fluently. And so what ended up happening was I raised my hand for a few opportunities. And then once we actually got to Hong Kong, many of the suppliers started asking me questions in Chinese to the point where the main client and my manager started just deferring the negotiations over to me. (laughs) And I distinctly remember the last week of negotiations my manager actually went to a few meetings and didn't even say a single thing because we had prepared enough in advance where he trusted me to offer discounts and to negotiate contractual terms so that was uh, one of my most meaningful projects
0: yeah that's awesome yeah um uh curious so i I did talk to a few other people um and you mentioned something about like getting all the menial jobs when you're young um And especially one job is pretty common, is the note-taking one. And do you think it has something to do with like being women or being from like a person of color? Like why do most note-taking assignments fall to people who are immigrants, who are women?
1: (laughs) It's such a fascinating question. I think that humility is a cultural value that's often praised in Asian societies, working together as a team, um, not rocking the boat um, and wanting to uplift other people. But what ends up happening is we uh, unintentionally assume subservient roles that might undermine our own credibility. So what I would say is there is a space for us to be humble and to also acknowledge credit for our accomplishments. So I don't mind taking notes. I personally wouldn't go as far to say I'm above note-taking but I also want the opportunity to be able to present to lead client engagements to actually deliver innovative solutions in addition to um, the work that needs to be done.
0: Okay uh, let's move on to your uh, next job which is uh, Facebook and I'm going to read your job title mm-hmm. which was a uh, business integrity operations manager political ads. First of all sounds very cool it's it's impressive that you get these kind of roles. But to set the context, you started doing this job in mid-2016, the election year. The election which was marred with all the foreign and Russian intervention. It's a very special opportunity. So what did you do? Tell us something and everything, maybe a cool story.
1: It was a fascinating job. Every day felt like I was fighting on the digital front lines. So I was within an organization called Trust and Safety within Global Operations. You can imagine that our main mission was to make the online community a safe and secure place for people to interact. Just as there are harmful activities off platform, there are harmful activities on platform. We had over 50 policies ranging from terrorism, human trafficking, animal cruelty, the sale of explicit materials, illegal materials, drug trafficking, things like that. So within that broad umbrella of trying to police activity on Facebook's platform, I focused on political ads specifically for the U.S. elections. And I was at Meta from 2018 to 2020. So I started as an operational workflow manager, classifying political ads, um, managing over a $98 million account of over five vendor partners who did content moderation. And then I moved on the strategy side to tackle larger questions such as, What is political content? Is it simply campaigning and electioneering material or is it also divisive inflammatory content as well? Um, And it was a great way to be able to work at all of the teams within Meta that do things around cybersecurity, risk and response, foreign intelligence, um, marketing, public policy. It was a very interdisciplinary role.
0: So when you talk about this trust and safety work and this policing all the content, is this more like a manual stuff or how much of it is like automated and how much of it is like through a subjective lens?
1: It's a combination of ML classifiers that do a first pass at categorizing 100% of our ads. So if you think about the flowchart of decision making, the ML models will all take a first pass at classifying ads as suitable for the platform or not suitable for the platform. However, for these machine learning models to accurately categorize this content, there needs to be humans at the center. It goes back to even the Design for America uh, question that we talked about before is how do we embed empathy into our processes and allow humans to be in the decision making process so my job was to sit at the core of communicating with ml engineers who are designing those classifiers but also work with the vendor partners who sat in um, philippines india the united states to click through multiple different types of political content label those ads and use that data to feed the models that were classifying ads digitally
0: but um, let's quickly do a reflective exercise. So when you worked at Facebook in the trust and safety team, um, did you think this was your calling because you worked there for the longest before you came to
1: I loved it. I loved it so much that I considered continuing to work at Meta even after I got my business school acceptance letter. I, interestingly enough, took a significant pay cut for this job and even moved from New York City to Austin, Texas. But because I was working better hours, I had a more social life. I was able to start the tennis club at the Austin office at Facebook. I was part of the API ERG. It felt like a more meaningful way to live life. So I was willing to take almost a 30% pay cut. Um, and I walked away from, you know, the benefits, the traveling, the credit card points, the hotel status to be able to take it. So. Um, I don't think it was necessarily my calling in terms of the terminal job I would do for 20 years of my life. I don't think that is often the type of career journey that people in our generation tend to take. However, it felt extremely meaningful for me and personally satisfying.
0: Right. So fast forward to the fall of 2020 and you are at the Harvard Business School there to get your MBA. Why did you want to do an MBA?
1: Within my first year at Facebook, three directors left the organization I was in. All three of them were women and two of them were East Asian women specifically so it made oh. me wonder why there was some sort of bamboo ceiling for Asian directors to be in leadership positions but more importantly I wanted to learn about different ways for a big tech to be responsible for society and both the products they were launching and the content they were displaying online I didn't think that being at one organization was the best way to have a holistic view and so therefore I wanted to get um, a master's degree to be Able to study it in a more academic setting. Um, I really loved HBS's case method. I loved the people that I met. I really enjoyed being on the East Coast, so that's why I ended up going to Harvard Business School.
0: Uh, Quick tangent again. Um, So when you mentioned something about like a bamboo ceiling for like East Asian women who are leaving their jobs, what's your hypothesis now? Like, why are they leaving?
1: My hypothesis is that leadership in the past in the United States was defined by certain traits that were more Eurocentric, such as outgoing, charismatic, um, very talkative types of personality types. And, Um, Oftentimes, I find that people of Asian descent might be stereotyped as being more submissive, docile, gentle, Um, but in actuality, there's a whole colorful spectrum in the way that leadership can be approached even among the Asian community. So I think that as that narrative is changing, we're starting to see more Asian people in leadership positions.
0: Right. Okay, so let's come back to HPS. Um, Angel was in Section J, I was in Section A. And the thing at HPS is that you take classes with your Section section only for the whole first year. So I didn't have any classes with Angel, and that's why I'm curious about your in-class presence. Um, So on what topics were you an active participant in case discussions? Like, Professor would know that Angel would have something to say on
1: this. Trust and safety, civic tech, social enterprises, um, I wasn't a dual degree student, so I know that a lot of our classmates have more public policy experience, but I really liked working at the gray area in which uh, businesses were innovating faster than public servants could either legislate or arbitrate. So I found that I felt very active in matters of ethical tech, civic tech, and trust and safety.
0: And what was the post MBA goal when you started at HPS?
1: so interesting to see how much I changed over those two years. I think Quite honestly, my MBA goals were to get a certain title, like a manager title with a nice cushy salary at a big company that had good benefits. And now given our economic situation and also my own personal journey and taking more risk in my career, I decided to join a startup. So when I started at business school, I thought I wanted to maybe be a product manager at a big tech company on a route to the C-suite. And now I find myself having a hard time forecast beyond five to 10 years and I'm just looking at roles that will allow me to learn
0: right but um, as far as I remember like you deferred your MBA for a semester I think so can you share the reason
1: Yes, so I'm very much driven by learning, and I had the opportunity to take some internships that was I was very excited to do. I worked nearly every semester of business school, actually, which I would say is not necessarily common. There's a lot of things competing for and not for our recommended also, and not recommended. <laughs> you know, you have to split your time between the social scene, academic scene, personal fulfillment, relationships, and work. Um, and so I took the semester off, and during that time, um, I had the opportunity to work at the United. Nations Development Program in their chief digital office, looking at how we can embed digital both internally and externally to the United Nations Development Program. And I also had the chance to work at TikTok on their trust and safety team. Good.
0: Right. And I um, mean, you already mentioned it, but uh, how I would describe is that you went on an internship plan page. You went to <laughs> Gusto, did TikTok, UNDP, Twitter, uh, lots of internships, four internships to be exact. What hypothesis were you testing at least?
1: I was testing two dimensions. One, the size of the organization. I came from really big companies that had thousands of employees. And then I was also testing um, what type of Role I wanted to do specifically more on the public sector side or the private sector side, and so with Gusto I was testing um, a startup. They were a Series E startup, so a smaller organization. And then at TikTok and Twitter, I was again seeing whether or not I li- like that big company role, but at a different organization. Um, and then within all of these, I was seeing whether or not I wanted to operate in that gray area of civic tech within the private sector or the public sector, and hence that's why I was um, at the United. Nations Development Program, more on the multilateral uh, institutional organization type setting. But also at Twitter, I was also within their Council org, which is legal, risk, compliance, trust and safety, and public policy.
0: Uh, so interestingly, you wanted to become a lawyer and then you ended up in council team anyway.
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so a related question, and this is, um, I'm thinking from my audience point of view. So uh, if someone is listening to this audio, they're like, okay, Angel is awesome. She has Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Gusto, every big name you can think of on her resume. What's her secret? How does she get all these
1: jobs? I think it's really important to meet with people and to listen to them and be authentic. I think nowadays people can tell if you're trying to schedule a coffee chat in a very transactional manner to try to either get some sort of quick referral or um, to be passed along to the next person. But what I really enjoy doing is meeting with people, understanding what makes them a whole person, understanding the humanity of their lived experiences, and then seeing ways that we can partner together, um, asking what I can do to support them in their journey as well. So for all, most all of the internships that I had, it was because I had a longer standing relationship with a member. Um, so for example, with Twitter, I actually reached out to a Section J alum at HBS, and I asked him what I could do to support his team, um, even though they didn't have a role. So I did a small research project on the side. I would send him articles that I thought were relevant to his team. And so a year later, when the role opened up, he had me top of mind, similar to TikTok. Um, i actually had worked together with an or uh, a coworker at Facebook, um, and we had just done a lot of collaborations on the side. But then when she went to TikTok, um, I continued nurturing that relationship so that when she was ready to hire, she also reached out to me. So that's my recommendation: is um, your net worth is your network, and so to be able to actually listen and meet new people and push yourself out there, especially if people are more introverted and might be intimidated, just start small, right? Um, meet with one person and. See you know, reflect on that experience
0: and build the muscle. Right. This was very insightful and kids, this is how you get jobs. (laughs) But no, this is a difficult question. And um, uh, I haven't asked anyone else and I don't know who else to ask this, but if you have to distill down learnings from working at like these more than half a dozen top class orgs, what are your top three learnings?
1: First learning is to identify your own metrics for success and what are your metrics for meaningfulness while canceling out the noise for what other people determine to be successful. Um, I would say the second thing is uh, finding out who you're working with might be more important than what you're actually working on. Because there's a lot of ways that you can do side projects to develop deep content expertise and be a subject matter expert. But your direct manager and your coworkers have a significant impact on your day-to- day experience. So use the interview as a chance for you to ask yourself, can I see myself building a trusting, meaningful relationship with these coworkers? Because in the future, you might be able to have a longer standing relationship outside the terms of your employment at that company.
0: Right. Okay, so let's move on to the current times and let's chat about Anis Health. Uh, You work as head of growth at Anis Health. Anis Health is a culturally responsive digital mental health platform for the Asian community. So there are two key terms. One is mental health, and for Asians. So for uh, just to uh, just for the audience' purposes, let's tell us why something like Anis Health is needed.
1: The Asian community has a mental health crisis that is not spoken about because of stigma and often shame. People don't know this. Suicide is the leading cause of death for members of the Asian community between the ages of 15 and 34. Additionally, the Asian community is more likely to drop out of seeking care and um, they are less likely to seek care in the first place. Um, The reasons for this is that existing solutions rely on ethnographic matching between a provider of color with a patient of color. But evidence from research suggests that just matching someone who looks at you might allow the therapist to empathize with your experience but it doesn't necessarily lead to better clinical outcomes so what Anise does is has pioneered a new model of delivering care for asian patients um, that embeds culturally responsive practices at every step of the patient journey and what we find is that um, patients who stay with us for over eight weeks experience significant symptoms, improvements in depression, anxiety and stress. Ninety seven percent of our clients report feeling seen, heard and understood. And um, we are extremely affordable and we're expanding across the country.
0: Yeah, ninety seven percent. That's a good number. <laughs> yes. like how far you can do better. But let's talk about your role at Annie's Health. Uh, what's your day to day role at at the company.
1: Very dynamic. You can imagine at an early stage company that's closing our first round right now, it's a day-to-day might vary. Um, So my job right now is the intersection of sales, uh, marketing, and um, health plan negotiations with insurance companies to go in-network. So... On the sales side, um, I lead B2B Growth, where I negotiate contracts with uh, organizations to bring psychoeducational webinars and interactive workshops with our clinicians as professional speakers to employees at organizations. I also negotiate with HR teams to see how we can offer a niece as a benefit as part of their wellness suite. Um, on the D2C side, I do a lot of community building with nonprofits, civic advocacy groups. So, for example, last week I was at the Asian Hustle Network in Vegas, um, and this month we're presenting at the Asian Creative Festival, the Asian Comedy Festival. Um, we were just at the Gold Gala in Los Angeles to represent Asians in media and entertainment. Um, we're doing an event with the Asian American Bar Association in New York for lawyers who are stressed, um, the Bush China Foundation, the National. Association of Asian American Professionals. Um, so I do a lot of brand building and community engagement there as well.
0: That's like a three-people job you're doing yes. right now. <laughs>
1: Very dynamic.
0: <laughs> uh, so, uh, Anise Health was just a few people when you joined them, right? Like, was it just Alish, Alice, and Nisha? Yes, right?
1: we're currently only four t- full-time staff, but as we close right. our round, we'll bring on a formal CTO, CMO, and clinical uh, strategist.
0: Right. But that's that's very early-stage startup. It's not when you say early-stage startup, it's like 10 to 15 people, but you are joining two people. And that's very, very early-stage startup. So now some of the listeners might be curious on why should someone join an extremely early-stage startup? And why should someone not do that?
1: Someone should join an extremely early-stage startup if they want to push themselves and challenge themselves to grow. Um, You also get to capture a lot of the early upside. I get to be a part of the team that defines the foundational elements for how a company grows. I actually feel like I'm building something. So the difference between when I was an advisor as a consultant was that you didn't really have as much input in the implementation of any of your strategies. But here as an entrepreneur and an operator, you actually get to build something that didn't exist before. So you should do an early stage startup. If you see a gap in the market, if you don't see a solution that exists, you should pursue it and create it. Um, one should not do it if you feel extremely uncomfortable with ambiguity and uncertainty. Um, so if you feel like you're in a place in your life where you can't take on that risk, whether it's a financial risk or benefits risk, then I would caution people to take this jump.
0: Right. Uh, so, so we are entering the last few segments of the podcast and things get a little bit philosophical <laughs> with warnings ensued. Uh, first question for you is... What do you know now you didn't know when you were, say, 17 or 18?
1: It's a really good question. What I know now is that life is unexpected and beautiful. And rather than trying to fast forward to the ending to know the exact outcome, it might be more important to just enjoy being in the present because oftentimes you're exactly where you're meant to be. And sometimes the best way through a challenging situation is to um just experience it and allow yourself to feel all of the challenges i would also say what i know now is that um, if i'm experiencing symptoms of distress or if i feel uncomfortable it might often be because there's different parts of me that are debating with each other right i might feel a part of me is wants to take this stable job, but another part of me might want to take an entrepreneurial job. Maybe my parents are telling me that I need to um, take less risk, but my friends are telling me that I should take more risk. And what I would probably recommend is that um, that signal of distress is trying to tell us something really important. So to understand uh, where all of those parts are coming with, it requires time. So I would probably remind my 18 year old self that it's okay if I feel like different parts of myself are competing with each other. And it's okay to make mistakes.
0: Right. And I know you sort of answered this, um, but I still go ahead and ask you, um, would you do anything differently with your career if you could go back in time and what would be that?
1: It's a really good question. My short answer is probably not. Um, I think that even like the mistakes that I made, I had to go through them to be the person that I am today um
0: right
1: and yes i probably wouldn't have changed anything
0: makes sense um last question for the day uh, so here's the hypothetical question um if you could have dinner with any historical figure dead or alive who would you choose and why
1: i would love to talk to michelle obama she seems like an incredible woman very humble um very organized she had she had many roles as a mother a wife a leader a public servant so i'd love to meet with her
0: okay that sounds good so thank you angel for coming on this show uh it's been incredibly awesome and i really enjoyed talking to you and i learned so much about you like our audience will be and despite knowing you for some time already <laughs> so it's always interesting like when you talk to people's motivations and you get to know people behind their decision making and there's something which is driving them And I hope I get some good understanding today. And thank you so much.
1: Thanks so much.
0: Yeah. Bye.
1: Bye.